onwards with tonight's talk. In the late 60s and middle, early to middle 70s, two very important neuroscientists, Michael Gazaniga and Joseph Ledoux, did research which produced results that, to my mind, were as revolutionary and as important as the work of Galileo and Copernicus. Now, if you know Galileo and Copernicus, they essentially produced the insights that, and evidence that revealed that the sun doesn't revolve around the earth, but vice versa. Even though, to common experience, it seems that the sun revolves around the earth, it's simply because we are on the earth that it, we have that impression. And of course, that insight produced the uh, much of the Renaissance and the eventual uh, fall of the idea of God being the causative principle that would explain all of nature and eventually gave birth to Newtonian science and so forth and so on. Now, Gazanega and Ledoux, in their research, showed that the thinking mind, the thinking conscious mind, the inner chatter in our brain, has a far less significant role than was previously suspected. In fact, in the past, uh, people obviously assumed, as do most human beings assume, that their thoughts are what create their actions. That thought lies at the causal epicenter of our behavior and of our moods and of our actions and of the things we feel. We all like to believe that our thoughts are very much guiding our behavior. And in fact, their research showed that the left hemispheric inner chatterer, which they dubbed the interpreter, plays a, in terms of causing behavior and causing emotional moods and causing uh, our actions and our experience uh, very little significance. The interpreter, though, does have an important role. It's just not what we thought it was. The inner thought creates the sense of cohesion and the sense that there's something interior in us that is a self or an identity or a personality and it creates a sense that that personality or self is somehow in control and actually what's going on is that um, much of our behaviors our actions uh, our feelings and our senses are produced by pre-conscious regions of the brain and then on top of our actions we add a story about why we did what we did and the process is so smooth and organized by the brain in such a way that uh, awareness backdates our actions so that it looks and it appears to us as if we think and then we act but in fact that's not the case the bulk of human behavior, the bulk of our impulses and our 
actions are actually pre-conscious and then we simply add a story about why I did what I did. And uh, in fact, Benjamin Labette, the great neurologist, through a series of ingenious studies showed that the only role of conscious thought is once in a great while to say, no, this is a really bad idea, stop. In Labette's words, we don't have free will, we have free won'ts. I kind of like that uh, quote. So, it's not bad news. Um, the fact that our breath and body is organized by the brain stem, by body I mean our body posture, the fact that our feelings and survival impulses are organized by the entirely unconscious midbrain, the fact that our emotions are activated by the right hemispheric orbital frontal and dorsal medial parts of the brain, which you knew, uh, is unconscious, is all fine and good. The fact that most of our strategic decisions are not being made logically or consciously, but are in fact operated by the dorsal medial ventral striatum, there's a long word. So the point is that those parts of the brain, even though they're not conscious, they hold a lot of wisdom. And in fact, we don't need to be consciously overriding or controlling our behaviors as much as we like to believe that we are. In fact, uh, the more thought tries to intervene and tries to essentially assert prominence over intuition and emotional wisdom and emotional integration, studies show the more and more we act illogically and against our best wishes and we become self-sabotaging. It's kind of fascinating. Um, a study by Damasio showed that card players, if they try to all the time logically decide when to hold and when to fold, God, I wish I started that too. All right, anyway, hold and fold. Uh, if they try to use logic, they actually play far, far worse than if they follow their intuition which, because the unconscious midbrain actually is far more capable of counting cards and developing unconscious awareness of when it's time to fold than the conscious mind is. The emotional right hemisphere of the brain is often far more, more accurate in guiding us towards socializing behavior than our thoughts, which are very often paranoid and very often will steer us towards isolating, suspicious behavior. Your emotional mind, the right hemisphere of your brain, is set up to establish secure attachments. Your left hemisphere is set up to interpret why people did the things they did and why you did the things they do. And the more it thinks unchecked, the more it tries to control, the more it will push you away from connections with other people that are vulnerable and intimate and are meaningful. Your right hemisphere has been shown in studies, even though it's not conscious, to be far more accurate in assessing the world around you than your thoughts. When people have their right hemisphere suppressed by ECT therapy for a while, they become more and more illogical 
and will follow extreme fanatical beliefs than when their right hemisphere is functioning and the left is not. So the thinking mind, while it's there, it is set up to produce narratives and ideas and stories to make sense of the world and make sense of why we acted, it is actually, to use one of the great analogies that neuroscience has produced, it's a little bit like a monkey riding on an elephant's back. The conscious mind, like the monkey, believes that it's making the elephant turn left or right, but the elephant is deciding that, and the monkey is simply on top of the elephant's back, creating the sense, believing that it's deciding and it's steering. Now, the more we integrate emotions and physical awareness into our decision-making, studies show the more we make wiser choices. Because so much of the wisdom that's stored by the unconscious doesn't speak through thought, which is limited to a very small portion of the left hemisphere, generally Broca and Wernicke's region. The wisdom accrued by all your relational experiences stored in lateral and ventral areas of the right hemisphere. The wisdom of all your survival impulses is stored in your midbrain. The wisdom that helps you digest and breathe and hold your body is stored in the brainstem and the medulla, etc. So your brain has a whole lot of wisdom in it that is not consciously under any conscious, I should say, control. The more you try to, when you are faced with uh, difficult experiences, try to simply figure it out by thinking a lot, the more you're setting yourself up towards extreme, isolating, cutting off, defensive, uh, I should even say, uh, avoidance coping is largely the result of thinking too much. So the Buddha was actually, interestingly enough, the first individual who realized just how diminished a role thought plays in human experience. In his Paticca Samapada, which he developed 2,500 years ago, 2,400 years before Freud and William James developed their theories about the unconscious, and 2,500 years before Ledoux and Gazzaniga, the Buddha taught that before thoughts arise, there are body, breath, emotions, and feelings. And so in the Buddha's practice of mindfulness, he inverted the order of attention that he suggested people pay to their internal experience when it comes to familiarizing ourselves with why we act and to change our behavior and to come up with new ways of living without producing needless stress and suffering in our life. Most thinkers, and still today, a great deal of therapy is cognitive. In fact, it's based on the idea that to change people's behavior, you have to change the way they think. And that's okay. Certainly changing unskillful thoughts for skillful thoughts can be a very, very useful practice. But studies show that there is so much more 
to actually addressing human behavior than simply trying to change the way we think by controlling cognitive resources. So the Buddha developed the principles of mindfulness to better accurately reflect the way we use the, the brain and or the mind, I should say, and also to give us far more tools of influencing our behavior and understanding the causative principles in what makes us act the way we act so that we can better understand ourselves. The first foundation of mindfulness, which I talked about two weeks ago, is simple awareness of the breath and the body. And in that talk, I talked about how many different clinical studies show that the way we hold our body actually influences our behavior. In my favorite uh, clinical study, the University of Pittsburgh showed that when people sit in uncomfortable chairs, if they're asked about their relationship, they will statistically say negative, pessimistic things about their loved ones. If they sit in comfortable chairs, statistically people will say positive, optimistic <laughs> things. Even the very same people switched within a week from an uncomfortable to a comfortable chair will change the way they anticipate and reflect their relationships. A woman named Amy Cuddy, a wonderful clinical psychologist, showed that the way people hold their bodies control the way they interact and how much confidence they exude in social situations, more so than their emotional moods or their thoughts, the way they hold their bodies. So that's the first awareness of mindfulness, just knowing how you're breathing and holding your body. A long exhalation, a relaxed shoulder, open chest, which creates a state of, of play, which it's called in uh, physiological therapy, uh, creates the influence to be more, more uh, confident and to be more relaxed in social settings. The second foundation is feelings. Just the awareness of when the unconscious survival circuits of the brain are telling you that you're uncomfortable or you're comfortable or you don't care about what's going on. Most people know about the survival circuits because they start to be tense all over when they feel uncomfortable in a social setting or when you're at a party and uh, you feel overwhelmed. You'll start to feel the shoulders tighten, the muscles tighten. You'll start to feel a visceral sense of discomfort when you're, on the other hand, when you're relaxed and serotonin starts to be released instead of cortisol in your brain. Your body will relax. The external limbs will relax you'll start to feel yourself in a different body. This general awareness of what the Buddha called Vedana is very important because very often if we're unaware of the role that intuition or feelings are playing, they will unconsciously push us towards very defensive survival first behavior. It's important to know what your body is telling you. Now let's talk about the third foundation which is emotional awareness. The emotional mind speaks to you, which is the right hemisphere, which is dedicated to your attaining 
secure relational attachments with other people. It talks to you in two ways. None of them are verbal. Your emotional mind is not a verbal faculty. The right hemisphere has very limited verbal faculties. Some, but very limited. It speaks to you, one, through the vagal vagal nerve which activates your stomach and your chest, your throat and your face. Just this limited part of the body. That's why when people go through heartbreaking breakups, their chests contract and they have what's called heartache. Um, when people are filled with fear because we feel disconnected with loved ones or we feel in unfamiliar surroundings not well connected with others, our stomach, abdominal muscles tighten. That's the vagal vagus nerve again. When you feel disempowered, when you're with people that you don't feel you can trust and you can't talk, your throat muscles will tighten. Again, your emotional mind is telling you very important relational messages. When you're feeling sad, disappointed, you might feel the micro muscles around your eyes as well contract. Or when you're angry, you might feel your jaw lock and the muscles in your brow might contract. All of this is your right hemispheric emotional mind telling you that something you're experiencing has had an effect on how securely connected you feel in the social world. That's what your right hemisphere cares about. The other thing your right hemisphere has control of is your attention. It can, the right cingulate, which controls emotional attention, is far more powerful than the left cingulate. So there's times in life where you don't want to think about something, but you keep on thinking about it, even though you don't want to. That's because the thing you don't want to think about has emotional charge to it. I'll give you an example. You might be at a party where an ex walks into the party and you don't want to see them, think about them, or even know what they're doing. And yet, like a magnet, that's the sound effect I'm adding for your chart, <laughs> the, the emotional brain pulls you to them and that you follow them and you don't want to think about them, but then you start thinking about them or perhaps uh, late at night you wake up and you relive an argument you've had with somebody important or a conversation with a parent or a relationship and you can't put it aside. That's because your emotional mind has been activated and it wants you to pay attention. Your left hemisphere, the logical interpreter that just wants you to achieve goals and create a nice story for your life, doesn't want to think about emotionally charged experience, so it gets into a tug-of-war battle, back and forth. So the key to emotional awareness is, one, to stop resisting and to observe the emotional mind, to allow it to pull you where it wants without resistance. When we start doing that, we find that the emotional activations become less disturbing, less dysregulating, less overwhelming, simply by allowing the emotional mind to pull us where it wants. And then to talk to the emotional mind with the left hemisphere as say, saying it's okay, assuring it that rather than overriding it, you'll listen to it, create a caretaking safe environment. The Buddha goes on to say that in awareness of emotional mind activation, just know 
when the mind becomes contracted and tight, or when it becomes filled with um, anger or aversion, or it becomes clouded with jumpy memories. And to simply, if we want to work with the emotional mind, rather than trying to pull attention away from what it wants us to think about, simply expand awareness. So you're allowing the memory of the ex or the uncomfortable conversation or the disappointing event to still be there. Just bring in more and more objects into awareness. So as you lie awake at night thinking about the negative conversation or the negative interpersonal event, instead of trying to push it away or argue with it or try to tell yourself how to think about it, allow it to be there and become aware of your breath, become aware of the sensations of lying in bed, hear the sound of the, sand, the, the fan or the air conditioner, expand awareness. When we do this, we're not at war anymore between the interpreter and the emotional mind. We're simply allowing the emotional mind to have its needs be met without having it dominate our entire experience. So that's a very simple way to develop emotional awareness, to feel it in the belly, to note where the attentional mind is taking us. Finally, I'd like to talk a little bit about awareness of thoughts, which we did some of in the uh, meditation. That's the fourth foundation. The fourth foundation of mindfulness is awareness of the cognitive mind. Again, the Buddha flips the order. Most of us, when we're in a difficult situation, when we're faced with unresolved or challenging experiences, when something, we have to make a decision, the first thing we do is we think about it. We don't ask ourselves, what does the breath what is it trying to tell me? What is my body through gut feelings trying to tell me? What is the emotional mind trying to tell me by how it's contracting my belly, my chest, my throat, or my face? What is it pulling my attention towards? We generally don't think about the other foundations. So fourth, after we do all that, after we familiarize ourselves with the somatic, physiological, felt, emotional experience, then we turn and we examine what kind of thoughts are present. And the Buddha sim simply said, it's best to check and see whether the thoughts we're having are the kind that completely obscure the rest of our experience or drive us entirely towards materialist external solutions. Or whether the thoughts that we are having allow us to share our awareness with the rest of our sensory experience. Some thoughts, for example, are based on craving. If only I could get rid of this roommate, get a better job, make more money, have, you know, uh, live in a different city. All these are very fine thoughts, but if they go too far, we can then completely lose track of all the wisdom that's accruing elsewhere and we can become sidetracked by this belief that the solution and all the wisdom comes by changing the world around us, by accumulating, possessing, or getting rid of something. Sometimes the thoughts are extremely 
self-centered based on fears. What will other people think of me if I leave this job? What will other people think of me if I suddenly move or take time off from work? What will other people think of me if I suddenly pick up uh, skateboarding? I don't know. So all of those thoughts are, of course, clouding the awareness of the rest of the intuitive, emotional body, and also they're obscuring the wisdom that other people who are caring and empathetic might provide us. On the other hand, there are cognitive processes, the Buddha said, that are very skillful. There's the mind that simply observes, that doesn't act reactively, that doesn't rush to judgment, that is willing to investigate and try out different ideas and see how they feel in the body to what the Buddha called investigation, dhamma-vikaya. Rather than get trapped in the two back and forths, I'm going to tell that person off, I'm going to stay away from them forever, I'm going to quit this job, no, I have to stay in this job even though I hate it, I'm going to back and forth to try out different possible ways of perceiving experience and to see how they feel in the body, in the breath, to the emotional mind. To be willing to express thoughts to other people and to notice which thoughts leave a lot of awareness space so that we don't get trapped by them versus the thoughts that completely cloud awareness, captivate, enthrall, but make it impossible for us to become emotionally aware or attuned to the wisdom of other people. The worst kind of thoughts, the Buddha says again and again, which lead to papancha, are thoughts that tell us that our experience is unique, that other people won't understand, that somehow we're alone, that also that worry about what appealing or uh, getting everyone else to approve of us. One of my favorite quotes by the Buddha is that no matter how you live your life, there'll be people who think you talk too much, people who think you talk too little, and people who won't like you because you talk just the right amount. <laughs> so you can't win. Instead of worrying about what's going to happen to me in the future, what other people think about me, or by uh, trying to uh, figure it all out, in general, it's best to have thoughts that invite awareness of the rest of the breath, body, feeling, intuition, emotional mind, thoughts that encourage us to connect with other people, to disclose our experience, to share what we're encountering, so that we can not only uh, incorporate their non less subjective and less fearful input, but also when we regulate our perceptions by sharing, we find that suddenly our, the way we perceive experience suddenly becomes far more right-sized and less threatening. So, to summarize mindfulness, it's about putting aside the allegiance to the need to make sense, to figure out, to tell a story, to come away with 
a nice little pat learning about experience or to figure out what things mean, and instead to check in with the nonverbal felt experience, to feel into the body, to note all of the different sources of wisdom that are available, to also note just how constructive the thoughts are, how much openness do they leave, to be willing to connect with other people. If we do that, we find that very assuredly our experience of aloneness and self-sabotaging and suffering will diminish. So anyway, I hope there was something worthwhile in there, worth thinking about. Maybe not, but uh, thank you for listening, and I'm going to turn on.